Today is the end of our Leaning Upstream series. Our purpose has been twofold. Uh, the first is to help you as a follower of Christ see yourself as a God-ordained exile. Committed to living for biblical causes, not earthly comforts. We serve a public savior who lived a public life, who died a public death. Why? That we might be public, not private, disciples. As Jesus said, we are the lights of the world. You are the lights of the world. And so through this series, our purpose has been that each and every one of us would move toward need and not ease. That when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, we wouldn't think about uh, acquiring uh, a new couch or a new car. Instead, we would think about advancing these biblical causes. Lifting up Jesus Christ. Why? So that the people in the communities around us would stop fracturing and flourish. So in this series, and in the insert you have on this series, you can see on the back the different subjects uh, we have gone through, we long that these biblical cultural issues would be so important for you that they are not adrenaline issues, they are coronary issues, heart issues. And that's been our first purpose. The second is that we have endeavored to help you see that as important as these different issues are, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is primary. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the ultimate solution to everything that ails us. All the brokenness, all the dysfunction around us. And I want you to understand there will be no cultural renewal, there will be no marriage renewal, personal renewal, church renewal, unless there is heart renewal. And the only way there will be heart renewal is through a saving relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. The glorious, beautiful hope of the world. And he has called you to be lights in the world. Lights of the world. And so these issues that we've addressed are critical in importance. But they're not the main thing. Jesus is. And Jesus' ability to resurrect and transform the human heart is the most important issue, the greatest opportunity for our world today. So now, let's go to our subject for today, this last and final subject, the subject of racism. And let me begin with a quote from John Piper's book. I've mentioned it in your insert, his excellent book entitled Bloodlines. Look what he says. Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over other races. Let me stop there for a moment. This is actually a definition of racism that comes from the Presbyterian Church of America in 2004. Piper is quoting it here. 
And then he goes on and he says, in spite of saying that, I usually use the term race with cultural connotations, ethnicity. In this definition, I am thinking of race primarily in terms of physical features. I am making a distinction between race and ethnicity. The reason is that since ethnicity includes beliefs and attitudes and behaviors, we are biblically and morally bound to value some aspects of some ethnicities over others. Where such valuing is truly rooted in biblical teaching about good and evil, this should not be called racism. There are aspects of every culture, including our own, whoever our is, which are sinful and in need of transformation. So the definition of racism here leaves room for assessing cultures on the basis of biblical standards. The focus of this definition of racism is on the heart and behavior of the racists. The heart that believes one race is more valuable than another is a sinful heart. And that sin is called racism. The behavior that distinguishes one race as more valuable than another is a sinful behavior. And that sin is called racism. Now the word race tends to focus on physical features, physical components. Ethnicity tends to focus on the broader, more cultural issues, but Piper is saying they overlap, and they in fact do. And what I want to do is I want to do two things. I want to look at some of the biblical issues, actually lay a biblical foundation, then I want to draw a couple implications three of them. But first, I want you to know that this is becoming increasingly for our family, for Rhonda and me, in the wonderful providence of God, a, a characteristic of our family. Let me explain why. Our son Nathan is married to Sarah. Sarah is half Korean. Our daughter Kyle, after giving birth to her first Elliot, can't have children anymore. She's done. And three weeks ago, uh, she brought into her home a three-day-old uh, African-American foster baby with a view to adoption. In addition, one of our other daughters, we have a lot of daughters, five of them, too many. <laughs> one of our other, other daughters, Christine, is seriously dating a guy she met when they were students at Wheaton College. His father is Samoan, his mother is Hispanic. I can't even pronounce his last name yet. But I'll tell you, it's better than Boo. Whatever it is, it's better than mine. This old German name that used to be Von Boo. Why did they go to Boo? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bibles. We're going to look at two passages. Turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at a crazy passage in Luke chapter 4. If you're using a Bible in front of you, and we got a couple of different editions working in here. It's around page 1030. And let's pick it up in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him. Now this is surprising. And were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now here's where it starts to get crazy. I tell you the truth. He continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephtha in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him, that is Jesus, out of town. And they took him to the brow of the hill, the cliff, on which a town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and he went on his way. Now this is the beginning of our Lord's ministry. This is the front end. His ministry is just out of the gates. And Jesus is in his hometown. He's speaking and the crowd does a complete 180. At the beginning of this moment in the synagogue, they're speaking well of him. They're stunned by his grace. And then at the end, they attempt to kill him. What in the world has happened? Well, what's happened is Jesus has told two Old Testament stories that started a riot in the synagogue in Nazareth. Now, let me back up, get a little context. Jesus is handed, we read the Isaiah scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61 about the coming Redeemer, the Old Testament promised, prophesied Messiah who will set prisoners free, who will perform miraculous healing, who will rescue the oppressed. Then, astonishingly, Jesus says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he is claiming to be that promised, prophesied Old Testament Messiah. But that didn't bother these people. We read they spoke well of him. Uh, maybe they're thinking, finally, we're going to get some political resolution. They're looking for a political deliverer. Uh, these first century Jews, just like most people today, thought most social, moral, even spiritual problems could be solved uh, politically. Uh, so maybe they're looking for a political deliverer here. What we do know is at this point in the story, everything is cool. Everything is good. But what our Lord does next is suicidal. Highly, highly offensive. And what's interesting to me, man, if you're trying to gather a crowd 
If you're trying to uh, garner a large following, you do not say what Jesus is about to say. And Jesus knew it ahead of time, so he said, and by the way, a prophet is, not without, or a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Um, in other words, Jesus is saying, um, let me tell you, what's going to happen next is not going to be cool. So he tells two stories. The first story, verses 25 and 26, comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. Uh, it's a wild slice of the wild life of the prophet, the great prophet Elijah, where God in his providence had the prophet pass over all the Jewish, the hurting, uh, vulnerable Jewish widows in Israel and had Elijah bring a miraculous blessing of food and miraculous healing to a Gentile widow from Sidon in despised Phoenicia, just to the north. Jesus is saying God bypassed Israel and blessed a foreigner, blessed an outsider. The second story is from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings from the time of another great prophet, the prophet Elisha. And Jesus makes the same point. Uh, God in his sovereignty passes over all the Jewish lepers and heals another despised foreigner, Naaman the Syrian. Now when you tie these two stories that Jesus is telling at the beginning of his ministry to his claim uh, to be the Messiah, Jesus is saying, as the Messiah, the kingdom I am bringing right here, right now, is ethnically and racially diverse. Jesus is saying, I am inviting people from every ethnic and racial group, not just one, and woe to you. If you say, fail to see how I value and love all people as equals. Jesus is announcing the end of racism. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is saying, faith in me, faith in me, faith in me, not the color of your skin, not the legacy of your tradition, not the extent of your education. Not the name of your mama and your, your, your papa is what will define the people of God. And our Lord Jesus will drive this point home over and over throughout his earthly ministry. So his most famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is about a foreigner. A different race. And when we come to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, his last words, and last words are always important, Jesus tells us, the, the church, to go into the world and make disciples of all, all, all nations. All tribes. All ethnicities. All races. We come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Uh, there's a story of a... Uh, a, a prominent uh, young Christian convert who just happens to be a, a, a black Ethiopian. 
right on the front end of the church. And then we move to the end of the New Testament. We come to the book of Revelation and all these beautiful pictures of heaven. And what do we read about heaven? Well, we read this. Look at Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. There it is. Every race, every ethnicity. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's amazing. It's amazing because, and I want you to see the connection to Luke 4 to um, uh, Revelation 7. The racial and ethnic diversity that Jesus announces at the beginning of his ministry is so precious to God, so valued by God the Father, that these distinctions will carry throughout eternity. They're permanent. Now, now think about that. Marriage is not permanent. There will be no marriage in heaven. But these racial, ethnic distinctions are so, such a, a big deal to, to God, they will continue throughout eternity. Jesus has come to create a global family full of diversity. And we will spend eternity not just tolerating diversity, but celebrating it. That's Revelation 7, verse 9. Now, what does this mean? What this means is that Christians and Christian pastors in pre-Civil War America who use the Bible to defend racism, bigotry, and slavery were wrong. Just as Christians today who use the Bible to defend homosexuality and same-sex marriage are wrong. Both are a capitulation to culture, a denial of the clear teaching of God's Word, and a failure to understand the costs of what it means to be an exile. This Christian minority that will always at certain points be out of step with the majority culture. Jesus wants to deliver his people from the arrogance of demeaning other races. And here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is almost killed as the ultimate exile for standing against his culture on racism. Uh, opposing racism, engaging in diversity, cost Jesus. Here he's almost killed. It will cost you. Now let me go on. Let me go to our second passage. But to set it up, I, I want you to understand that living the way Jesus is calling us to live is impossible. Uh, we're not equal to this. The capacity of the human heart for evil is too great. 
And our hearts, all of our hearts, are, are, are full of pride, superiority, uh, uh, self-centeredness, fear, insecurity, and on and on. So to live as Jesus is calling us to live it is beyond us. So what are we to do? Well, we need to move from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus announces his mission to end racism, and fast forward to the book of Ephesians. So turn now to the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn ahead about 150 pages in most of your Bibles. And so we're going to move from Jesus' teaching to Paul's teaching, where Paul unpacks how Jesus accomplished this where Paul tells us how racial harmony is possible for people like you and, and, and me. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, so he's speaking to the church at Ephesus or a cluster of churches in the Ephesus area, and he's reminding them, you guys are Gentiles, they know that, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who would call themselves a circumcision, that would be the Jews, that done in the body uh, by the hands of men. Remember, verse 12, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, you were without hope, strong words. And without God in the world, even stronger words. Here in these two verses, Paul's point, and Paul isn't softening things. Paul isn't living in denial. We do nobody any favors when we soften things and live in denial. Uh, Paul is saying, you were outsiders before Christ. You were without hope, without God. But jump ahead now to verse 19. And notice how everything changes for the races, uh, for the Gentiles. Paul says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. No longer, it's over. But fellow citizens with God's people, with the Jews, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, that is Christ, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives uh, by his spirit. So here, at the end of this passage, this section in Ephesians, uh, Paul is just giving us a picture of racial and cultural harmony that is breathtaking. What has happened? Well, let's pick it up in verse 13. Let's go to the middle. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through, here it is, the blood of Christ. Well, what, what does that mean, Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked that. And he continues in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new entity, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God, here it is again, through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
So Paul says it's the blood of Christ, verse 13. It's the cross of Christ, verse 16, that puts to death the hostility. In other words, horizontal reconciliation between races is possible because of the vertical reconciliation God offers us in Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? That means God put his son to death on the cross for our sin. For our superiority, our, our pride, our, our prejudice, our, our, our racism. And when we see that sin and see the wonder of the salvation God offers us in Jesus Christ, and we transfer our trust from ourselves to, to Jesus and his death in our place, when we believe in Jesus, any of us, and all of us that do, become forgiven sons and daughters of one father, members of one family, indwelt by one Holy Spirit, and we are being built together into one temple. And the dividing wall, the dividing wall that is characterized by hostility, hostility between races and ethnicities, is destroyed in Jesus Christ. His blood. Jesus Christ went to the cross to end racism. Look at how another pastor puts it. Americans have been turning to organizations, education, famous personalities, ultimately government, in an effort to address the ongoing racial strife in our nation. In 08, many hoped that election of an African-American president would finally bridge the racial divide. Today, we are left wondering why racial tensions have not abated. They've actually increased over the last couple of years. The only, only, only solution powerful enough to overcome racial strife and bring about reconciliation and harmony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this gospel that announces that through his blood, Jesus has demolished the dividing wall that separates humanity along racial lines and has brought all ethnicities together as brothers and sisters in one body, the church. Never, ever underestimate the importance, the priority, and the role of the church in any culture. The church is what God anoints to seek the flourishing of the communities around us. And if Ephesians 2 means anything, it means that racial harmony is a blood issue, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not a mere social moral issue. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, Paul is telling us here in this passage is the end of ethnic arrogance, the end. Because not only uh, 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 are we brothers and sisters in Christ, are we all equal at the foot of the cross, uh, but the bloodline of Jesus Christ is infinitely deeper than the bloodline of race. If Ephesians 2 means anything, it means God wants unity, not mere neutrality. 
He wants the very composition of the church in all its diversity to preach the gospel. And the greater our diversity, the greater our opportunity to glorify Christ. Now, a couple implications and I'm done. Number one, we have a race problem because we have a sin problem. Jesus Christ came to address our race problem because he addressed our sin problem. And none of us are immune to bigotry, to superiority, to, to, to racism, to prejudice, because all of us struggle with the underlying issues of, uh, of pride and self-centeredness and externalism. I mean, uh, we look at the externals, God looks at the heart. We focus on outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And so I want, want to say to you today, own your tendency to racism. Don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Uh, confess it and, and, and face it. All of us are minimizers. All of us minimize our own personal sin. We see the sin in others. We miss the sin in our hearts. And all you need to do to convince yourself uh, of the depth and the horror of your sin is look at the tragedy of the cross. And what God put his son through to rescue you from your sin. Don't minimize it. The second implication. Be an extremist on this issue. Be an extremist about ending racism. In 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama... Dr. Martin Luther King was thrown in jail, Birmingham jail, at the end of leading a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration. At the end of the demonstration, parenthetically, he knelt in prayer. Thrown in jail. While he was in jail, he got a letter from local pastors, clergy, all white, all of them white, criticizing Dr. King for being an extremist. He wrote a famous letter, the letter from the Birmingham jail. Look at a piece of what he said. You call me an extremist? Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. You pray and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, was not Amos, the Old Testament prophet Amos, an extremist for justice? He said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? He said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all men were created equal. So the question is not whether we will be an extremist, but what kind of extremist will we be? 
Will we be an extremist for hate or for love? What about you right now, 2015? Third, and I'm done. The Bible forbids marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. It does not, it does not forbid interracial marriage. As a matter of fact, one of the most celebrated marriages in the Bible is the marriage that took place between Boaz and Ruth. One of the reasons it's so celebrated is that union resulted in King David and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But Boaz was a Jew and Ruth was a Moabitess. Different ethnicity, if you will, different race. But they were both lovers of God. There is no rule in the Bible forbidding interracial marriage, only marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. The goal in the Bible is not to protect racial purity. It's to protect religious purity. So Moses earlier marries a Cushite. A black African, Moses. The image of God is thousands of times more important to who we are than our race. And you idolize your race or a race when you oppose mixed marriages. Now, yes, there can be complications. But according to the Bible, what we discover is that God delights in not just a few, but in, in, in thousands of variations of race, of human beings. As a matter of fact, we have a word for that in the Bible. It's called heaven. Now, Wheaton Bible Church has a ways to go in this, frankly. But I want you to know, I want you to hear from me, we are committed to the journey. We are committed to becoming increasingly welcoming, increasingly diverse. And we have a ways to go. But I want you to join us. And I want you to join us today. Amen?